Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. And today, we have the second installment on telehealth reimbursement. You might want to quickly review the first two episodes in this series, plus the bonus episode on telehealth versus telemedicine, to get oriented before we dive down this rabbit hole. And let me tell you, falling down the rabbit hole will prove to be a particularly apt analogy here. Before we begin, two disclaimers. We've gone from a no-disclaimer podcast to a two-disclaimer podcast rather abruptly, but it needs to be said. First, this is a general policy framework. There are a lot of details being glossed over and guidance changes frequently. In the show notes, we'll link some additional resources, but please don't take this podcast as billing advice. Second disclaimer is that I love applied economics. I love looking at payment and valuation systems and how they produce different outcomes. And I'm going to describe this telehealth reimbursement system as if it were reasonable. That is stoicism speaking. That is not an endorsement of the way things are operating right now. And with that, we begin. We're going to keep the two disclaimers theme going here and do everything in sets of two. Pre-COVID-19 conventional wisdom was, you kept messaging to lists of three. I think we've reached the point where the most we can handle is two. It's got a Robert Frost sort of vibe. Telehealth is many paths, diverging in a virtual wood, almost none of which are well-traveled by. The first set of distinctions is the one we preface all these conversations with. It's telemedicine versus telehealth. And yes, it does matter. Telemedicine, the group of remote services that are analogous to an in-person service that replace them one for one, standard office visits, for example. That's called telemedicine. Within telehealth, there are a lot of services that aren't analogous to an in-person visit. Five-minute check-ins, monitoring blood oxygen levels from home, communicating through a patient portal, those sorts of things. Those all live in the broader world of telehealth. Medicare doesn't follow this convention, and they call telemedicine telehealth. And that's a harbinger of how this whole thing is going to go. We're keeping it conventional in our use of telemedicine for the remainder of this episode. Next, when we talk about reimbursement policy, we really mean two types of issues. One is what services get paid at what rate, and the other is the context of how those services can be delivered. Those context issues were a focus of the first reimbursement episode. They include things like whether a license can be valid in a bordering state if your patient is stuck at home there, or whether new patients can be added via telehealth. This episode will focus on what gets paid. Looking at the world of payment for telemedicine, you can lump the philosophies into two categories. At least, in this episode, you can. Go listen to the payment reform episodes if you're itching to hear about more categories. For now, two. The first is the route that Vermont followed. And when I say Vermont, I mean Medicaid plus the commercial payers. And that's parity. You basically say, if a provider is doing the same service, they just happen to not be in the same room as the patient, then we treat it the same as if it had been in person. In this system, it's a clinical determination whether the service is appropriate for delivering remotely in a given circumstance. And if it is, then there's no payment-based discouragement from doing so. The other approach is for the payer to list service code by service code and provider type by provider type what is eligible to be done remotely and to create a separate system for valuing the reimbursement level. That second philosophy is what Medicare adopted. You can quickly see how Medicare's system did not lend itself to rapid expansion during a public health emergency. Medicare also saw this problem. At the end of April, they changed the system for adding new codes to the list of allowable telemedicine services so that each code did not have to go through a full rulemaking process. 
and they opened up telemedicine billing to all providers that can directly bill Medicare. They also changed their system for billing so that practices using standard fee-for-service received equal rates for delivering services via telehealth. Note that rural health clinics, RHCs, and federally qualified health centers, FQHCs, are not in that fee-for-service category and do not get equivalent rate. We'll get to that. Another place where you see the split between parity payments and a more complex system is in audio-only telephone services. Medicare at first insisted on a video connection for telemedicine. Then at the end of April, reverse course with a new system. They've indicated that some individual codes are allowed to be audio-only. They also lifted some service codes out of the telehealth world and ported them over to be considered telemedicine and assigned them a higher reimbursement rate. There are problems with that. Remember that the telehealth codes were never meant to be office visit replacements, so they have some additional restrictions on them, like they can't be related to any other office visit and can't be billed more than once every seven days. It was not a clean transition to opening audio only. Vermont again went with its parity approach. If clinicians determine the service they need to provide can be done over audio-only telephone, then they can provide it and do so for equivalent reimbursement. I'm going to pause here because this decision highlights a debate that exists for all of telehealth reimbursement. Shouldn't things be done more quickly using these codes? And if so, does parity payment lead to a system that costs more? Just to be clear, no one is making great strides in gaining efficiencies during the most catastrophic public health emergencies since the advent of the modern telephone system. So, no. But the more nuanced answer as we look ahead is that we need to keep separate the telehealth options designed for efficiency, of which there are many, and the options designed for other reasons. Telemedicine using audio only, if we're doing it right, won't return any efficiency for a while. The most we can ask of it is gaining access to healthcare providers for those who might otherwise forego or delay care. Remember that we've already taken all the quick telephone check-ins that are meant to be quick check-ins out of the picture. Those are a different category. Think of the types of calls that remain. There's a lot of mental health-related calls, which often have a set time frame anyway. But when they don't, practitioners report that they spend more time developing rapport with their patients over the phone. And when the connection is easy, some people talk a lot more when it's not face-to-face. Also, often providers find themselves using the phone after audio-visual connections fail, because we're supposed to always try those first. So there's time spent on managing technology. Most significant, if you're working through with a patient whether they might need to find a way past the obstacles, COVID or otherwise, that keep them from coming to an in-person meeting, that's a lot of conversation to both determine whether in-person is actually needed and if so, how to accomplish it. That's on top of the systems change needed to start to use audio only, build and revise workflows, study and develop clinical guidance, to retrain in best practices. So yes, there are some quick calls that we can be grateful for, But overall, this particular category of telehealth may not provide immediate efficiencies. Okay, a recap before we dive into the final bucket of confusion, which, to refresh your memory, will be Medicare's approach to FQHCs and RHCs. We've got the divide between telemedicine, the remote care that's analogous to -to face-to-face care, and telehealth, which is the full, diverse world of all that we can do using telecommunications technology. That's a critical reimbursement distinction. We've acknowledged that there's a whole lot of context setting that needs to happen before practices can get paid for delivering remote care, and then there's a specific framework for how much that payment will be. Important to have both sides in place and aligned. Within the specific framework of getting paid for telemedicine services, you have a parity-based approach, which is Vermont, 
and a much more complicated service-by-service, practitioner-by-practitioner, nuanced valuation approach, which is Medicare. And what happened to FQHCs and RHCs in all of this? I'm going to focus on FQHCs because they're the group I work with, but the framework problem is similar for RHCs. Remember from the earlier episodes that by act of Congress, the only time FQHCs are allowed to be reimbursed by Medicare for providing telemedicine is during the COVID-19 emergency. That's almost 40% of Vermont Medicare beneficiaries who will be left out once the emergency ends. Another critical element is that FQHCs have a particular payment structure, what's called a prospective payment system, or PPS, giving them a Medicare PPS rate. What's about to follow is a gross oversimplification of PPS, but then simple is a relative term. Here's the central issue. FQHCs are a particular kind of healthcare practice. Their status requires them to accept all patients, regardless of ability to pay, to provide a range of comprehensive services that include helping with community health and social determinants of health, and to offer these services in all geographical areas, including rural places where there might not be a lot of patients. That makes traditional fee-for-service difficult. Instead, Medicare set a rate based on the average cost to provide a set scope of services and adjusted by geography. FQHCs then get that rate for each encounter. There are rules about what type of provider can charge this encounter rate, when it gets charged, and how frequently it can be charged. For example, it's only in a few special circumstances that you can charge more than one encounter for a patient in a day. An example of this would be having separate visits with a primary care provider and a mental health provider on the same day. Medicare did not open parity for this PPS system and a remote system of providing care. Nor did Medicare say, FQHCs, when you're doing telemedicine, you're like any other practice, bill accordingly. Instead, based on congressional guidance, Medicare took a weighted average of the physician fee schedule use of the telemedicine codes and came up with $92.03 to be paid under a bundled code, with a copay required that FQHCs could choose to not collect, but would not be reimbursed for. In other words, they're offering about half what FQHCs would normally get per encounter. But saying it's half doesn't quite do justice to the question, because the PPS wasn't only about a dollar amount, and neither is fee-for-service. It's whole systems of billing that weren't fully preserved nor entirely replaced. For example, it's unclear how the new system accommodates billing twice in one day when that would have otherwise been allowed. Also, Medicare guidance says FQHCs can now bill services outside that original scope of services, the list that set the PPS rate. And that would open up billing for more things, but other existing regulations in other places still say FQHCs can't build those codes to telehealth. And if you're bundling everything under one code, and the audio-only codes have a unit limit on them because they got transitioned from a whole different code set, how does that work? And if FQHCs are getting less for telemedicine, there's still that whole broader world of telehealth codes that might make up some of the difference. Except that the reimbursement for those is built assuming FQHCs still get that PPS rate. For example, remote patient monitoring and interprofessional consults are excluded on grounds that they're covered by PPS. And as you might expect from this abridged list of confusions, when you try to create entirely new systems mid-pandemic, the actual computer programs processing these Medicare claims They aren't expected to be fully functional until July 1st, at which point all telemedicine claims that had been billed between January 27th and June 30th will be automatically reprocessed and the difference between the PPS rate and $92.03 will be reclaimed from FQHCs. My stoic presentation of this approach as being rational may have cracked a bit under that last paragraph, 
Here, let me read you something verbatim from an attempt by billing experts to decipher the guidance. Bill all in-scope telehealth services on a UB04 claim and receive $92.03. Bill all out-of-scope services to Medicare Part B FFS on a HICFA and receive FFS allowable amounts. During COVID-19, FFS bill on a HICFA with same POS as an in-person visit with 95 modifier. FQHC in-scope services will be billed on a UB04 with a 95 modifier in revenue code 052X until it's 630-2020 on 7-1-2020 bill G2025 followed by a list of services that will likely be denied if you follow the instructions, so not those. This confusion matters for many reasons. But for this episode, we're keeping it at two. One is that it was very, very stressful to transition overnight to remote care, and the ever-changing, sometimes untenable guidance ramps up that stress, including for patients who receive bills no one can explain. Two, this matters because we need to turn the corner to some sustainable form of telehealth delivery, not just for as long as we're battling COVID-19, but also beyond. Part of being sustainable is having a telehealth system that payers will recognize and reimburse for. Right now, FQHCs and RHCs have no road to such a system. And it isn't the greatest clarity for other practices either. Two very good reasons to continue exploring telehealth policy on future episodes of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. We thank our sponsor, Northern Counties Healthcare, for making this special series on telehealth and COVID-19 possible.